Today's reading comes from Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it is said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Before we get started, um, I just actually want to take a, a quick moment just to thank my wife and, uh, and my family. Uh, there's a lot of work that goes into these sermons, and uh, they, have, they are so gracious um, to put up with all that. And so uh, thank you, Karen, and thank you, Eric and Annalise. Let's pray. Father God, I need your help this morning. I really do. Uh, this is not an easy passage. It is a convicting passage. It is a passage that as I prepare, um, it speaks to my heart and moves me to repent and to cling on to your righteousness and your grace. Father, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and the will to obey it this morning, to look to you for our righteousness to repent of our anger. Please be with me today as I speak. Um, help the words that I, that you have uh, prepared um, be ones that minister to your people uh, in a way that is, is not just head knowledge, but it's really, really practical. In Jesus' name, amen. While we're back in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, Last week, Brandt expounded on verses 17 through 20 in Matthew 5, and we learned that Jesus came to fulfill the law, and that we have a greater righteousness found in Christ. And as Brandt alluded, the law and the prophets is shorthand for the Old Testament. It's shorthand for all the books in the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, representing the Old Covenant. And Jesus made it clear that he did not come to abolish the law, rather to fulfill it. And so in the rest of this chapter, Jesus gives six contrasts that illustrate verses 17 through 20. On the surface, they seem like passages that basically go like this. They go, oh, you thought that was the law. Well, let me just tweak it up a few notches. But read deeper. And we see that all of these illustrations we'll cover in the next six weeks. They must be put in light of what Jesus said in verses 17 through 20. You see, in these contrasts, Jesus demonstrates practically 
how he seems to ratchet up the requirements of the law by showing us the heart of the law. And then he shows us really how impossible it is to ever meet the law. And then he shows us how he fulfills the law and then how impossible, uh, sorry, and then how we really need a new type of obedience, the obedience of faith. In every single one of these examples, our responsive posture must be this. Lord, I need you. Would you please help me bear fruit and be glorified in me? And so this week, we examine one of these topics. We examine anger and reconciliation. My aim is to answer this question. How does the greater righteousness found in Jesus Christ inform, that is, radically change the way that we view anger, how we deal with anger, and how we are to relate to our our fellow brothers and sisters? My outline is four points this morning. We're going to have to move quick. (laughs) First, anger defined. What is anger exactly, biblically speaking? Two, anger and the law. Three, anger and the gospel. And four, anger and me. How do we, how do we apply this truth? So first, anger defined. What is anger? Robert Jones, uh, a prominent biblical counselor, he's the author of this book, Uprooting Anger, and one of my professors at Southern, he offers this working definition. It's a pretty good one. It says, anger is a whole person active response of negative moral judgment against a perceived evil. Let me say that again. Anger is a whole person active response of negative moral judgment against a perceived evil. Dr. Jones's definition highlights several elements. First, it is Manifested in the whole person, inner and outer man, body and soul. Think of the classic Vancouver example of a conflict, perhaps between a cyclist and a car. Um, Imagine perhaps in slow motion what the cyclist and the driver are thinking as they have a near miss at Cornwall and Cyprus, as the driver tries to stop. And the cyclist riding the bike lanes in the snow cuts him off. Consider the thoughts that are going through the driver in the cyclist's head. Perhaps the insults, the murderous thoughts, the disdain, the temptation to give each other the one-finger salute. The bitterness, perhaps, at the city, you know, for not having enough bike lanes, or maybe too many, depending on which side you're on. Or perhaps it's this kind of low-grade irritability. I suffer from that. Sarcasm, cynicism, outright expletives. Some may be resorting to fistfights, a couple of broken tires, a sense of entitlement. This whole person whole person active response. 
second element that Jones's definition highlights is an active response. It's something we do. It's not something that we, we have. And anger is this expression in response to external provocations, but it is not caused by them. Let me say that again. Anger is expressed in response to external pressures, but it is not caused by them. While your sin against me, let's say you insult me or betray me, please don't do that. Uh, It may provoke me to anger. The cause of the anger is not your sin. And this is probably where the biblical view of anger differs the most with that of popular psychology. You see, whereas anger is often defined passively and causation is outside of us, the Bible describes anger as an outflow of our real internal problem. They are caused, as James says in chapter 4, by the passions at war within. The competing affections or the desires of the inner man is the things that are going on in here, our own sin, our own competing affections that work itself out in anger. And so because of this, change, not just mere management, is possible. It is possible to be changed from anger if the root causal factors of anger are properly identified. The third uh, thing that Dr. Jones highlights is that anger involves a negative moral judgment against a perceived evil. Negative moral judgment against a perceived evil. It stands, anger stands to oppose an injustice of perceived evil. We make judgment against what we perceive to be evil. We respond to that. And here's the funny thing. It exposes our value and our belief systems. It exposes our real value and belief systems. The Bible describes three forms of anger. There's divine anger, there's righteous human anger, and then there is sinful human anger. Now, God's divine anger is a whole-bodied, active response against a perceived evil, namely sinners and their sin. God's anger is always righteous because he is holy, he is righteous, and he is just. We see this clearly here. Implicit in these verses, implicit in this passage, is the notion of divine judgment, of divine anger. You know, notice the repeated uses of the words liable to judgment, liable to counsel, liable to the hell of fire. These phrases imply a judgment that is beyond ourselves. It points to a judge that gives out such judgment. That holds such a counsel. That has the authority to mete out punishment like banishing you to the hell of fire. Uh, I want to camp out here for just a second because let's be, let's be real. Let's be honest. Uh, I know that in postmodern Vancouver, Kitsilano, in this culture, this notion of divine anger 
divine judgment seems very foreign. Our culture tends to think of judgment in, in terms of um, luck and karma, right? Like if you do something bad, it might come back randomly to bite you. But what God revealed in the law and the prophets is that there is a divine righteousness. There is a divine judge. There is a divine standard. There is an objective standard of right and wrong, of good and evil, by which we are all measured. And if I'm reading my Bible correctly, it says here that if we fall short of that standard, even by an iota, even by a tiny, tiny dot, there is divine judgment. And that judgment entails a divine anger and a divine punishment. And that punishment is death. To put it bluntly, according to God's righteous law, God has the right to judge sinners. God has the right to murder sinners. If you think I'm exaggerating by using a word like murder, I doubt Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, 1 through 11 would agree. These weren't Old Testament folk. These were New Testament folk. These were New Testament folk that God struck dead for having lied. In fact, God's anger, God's divine anger, is a whole-bodied, active response against actual, not just perceived, evil. And it's actual evil because he is the standard of good and evil. The second form of anger is human righteous anger. Human righteous anger uh, is anger that reflects God's glory and name. It is anger that is jealous for his sake. It reacts against actual sin. It focuses on God's kingdom, on his godly characteristics, on his glory, on his name. It is always accompanied by godly characteristics such as self-control and it expresses itself in godly ways, namely love. Jesus, of course, expressed righteous anger when he overturned the tables in the temple. And Paul rightly expressed such anger in exhorting the Corinthians, for instance, to sexual purity in some of his letters. If you read them, you can't help but have this impression that he was maybe a little bit angry. Righteous anger will often take the form of a loving rebuke for the sake of God's name and his glory. And it is always done out of love. And finally, we get to sinful human anger. That's the majority of what we want to talk about today. This is what Jesus is primarily addressing in these verses, in verses 21 through 26. Remember that Jesus is addressing it by highlighting the root of the law. He was highlighting it to show how impossible it is for, ever, for us to ever attain it by the law, and then showing how he fulfilled the law. And so, let's dive in and take a look. Verses 21 and 22. 
anger in the law. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Jesus refers, of course, to the sixth commandment in Exodus 20:13, which says, you shall not murder. Thou shalt not murder. You know, not much more really needs to be said here other than murder meant the intentional killing of another. It includes, uh, it, it does not include rather things like self-defense or manslaughter. In other words, there is this notion of intent. Now, not many of you, at least I really hope not, uh, would disagree that murder is wrong. Even in a secular society, laws agree for the most part. You just can't go around offing and, and killing people as we'd like. But Jesus ratchets up that standard, right? He's saying what the law really meant was the intentions of the heart. Verse 22, But I, Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus gives three examples in increasing clarity. First, he says, if you're angry with your brother, you're liable to judgment. Second, he says, if you insult your brother, you're liable to counsel, meaning the eternal counsel, the eternal courtroom, judgment. And third, he says, if you say, you fool, that is, if you have an air of disdain toward your brother or your sister, you will be liable to the hell of fire. Now notice how this last point really turns up the heat. In fact, even just this morning, I think I had thoughts of that, and someone convicted me of that. Notice how what seems to be the least offensive of these. I mean, how many of us have said in our minds, what a fool! Or called someone an airhead or an idiot. Maybe not out loud. That's, that's my contextualized version of the Greek. Or, um, or have been frustrated or annoyed or irritated at someone or something. You know, who's the idiot that designed this as the door handle falls off? Notice that what seems to be the least of these offenses results in the most severe of punishments, the hell of fire. In other words, Jesus not only clarifies what the law says, he just turned up the heat so high that nobody in this room could ever ever attain it. By the law, we all stand condemned. Even if you have never murdered someone, and I really hope you haven't, we have all called somebody else a fool. We have all insulted another, and we have all been angry with one another. So here's the question. Why, why does Jesus seem to equate these two to three behaviors that seem rather small 
Why does he equate that with murder? How is murder on the same scale as being angry and calling someone an idiot? How is murder on the same scale as anger and disdain? There are a few answers to this, but let's just think about this for a moment and go down one path. Have you ever thought about why murder is wrong? funny, I kind of got into a Facebook debate with someone once about this. We know it to be inherently wrong. Even pagans know this. But, but why? Why is murder wrong? Like, why shouldn't we kill each other? Well, it's wrong for several reasons. First, the Bible says that human beings are, are made in the image of God. And so to murder or to kill someone uh, is to kill someone whom God created in his image. But second, and perhaps more on point, is that it is wrong because it takes justice into our own hands. Murder is wrong because it elevates our standard of righteousness above that of God's. It takes our standard of righteousness above that of God's. And we do according to our judgment of what only God should do. We become both the judge and the executor. Consider a murder in the Bible. It's not just the bad people in the Bible, right? In, first, in 2 Samuel 11 through 12, we read of David and Bathsheba. And many of you know the story of adultery. But in that story is David's subsequent murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. This narrative is actually interesting because we can clearly see the sense of justice that David had. What seems to be righteous anger when Nathan the prophet confronts him with a parable in 2 Samuel 12, 4-6. And then Nathan says, this is you. That was, of course, Nathan's tactic in confronting David with his sin. And there's a very interesting lesson here that oftentimes we confuse what we think is righteous anger with sinful human anger. This is where we can see that murder and anger stem from the same root. When we are angry with someone, when we insult them or call them a fool, we are making a judgment against someone else to satisfy a sense of justice, our own. And in pride, we place that sense of justice and righteousness over and above God's. In fact, you could say that our anger is a direct reflection of our view of God's justice as inadequate. We are actually saying that God's justice is inadequate, and hence our anger is actually directed at God. And here's the thing. Putting ourselves in opposition to God, in hostility toward God, is never a good idea. Murder, anger, and insults 
all falls short of the law of God because it places our hearts in opposition to Him. When we place our sense of justice, of right and wrong, above His, we grumble at, we become bitter toward, we take offense with what He's given. We take offense for what He's given us for our good and we perceive it as evil. And so, deep in the crevices of our sin, we see this picture of this, this chasm, this chasm of hostility that separates God's righteousness displayed in the law and our inability to keep it. What I mean is this. If there's this battle to be right with God, right? If there's this battle to be right with God, it seems, it seems from what I've just said, that God's judgment is so perfect, is so complete, his opposition to your sin so righteous, that there is this great chasm of hostility toward you. There is no way that we are able to break through this chasm. Let me paint briefly another picture. In the context of the Old Covenant, God displayed this chasm, this contrast, this hostility, by choosing a people for himself, namely the Israelites. His chosen people, the Israelites, were people with the law. They possessed God's standard of righteousness. He set out to make known to the nations, all the nations, that these were his people. In contrast to those that were not. You see, the Gentiles did not possess the law. And so we get this picture in the Old Testament of the Israelites being set apart. They were the covenant of people. They were set apart from those that did not have the law to reflect his holiness. And between the Israelites and the Gentiles, there was this hostility. There's this picture of hostility. There was a dividing wall. In fact, in Jerusalem, on the temple, um, there was this physical wall separating the court of the Gentiles away from the place where the Israelites worshipped. On the one side were those that had a covenant with God, and on the other were those who were as Paul says in Ephesians, alienated, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Ephesians 2.12. And even here, as Brent pointed out last week, the Israelites got it wrong, especially the super holy people, the Pharisees. They thought that because they were God's people, because they possessed God's law, that they were righteous because of it. And here Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying on the Sermon on the Mount that even they fall short. The Pharisees failed to see that they did not have any righteousness of their own. The Israelites were chosen to display God's righteousness. 
Not by what they did, but whose they were. They failed to see that their supposed righteousness failed because they failed to acknowledge and submit to a greater righteousness. And in our sin, in our sin, brothers and sisters, we can be like one of these two groups of people. We can feel like the Gentile at the outer court of the temple, kind of uh, peering in, seeing the righteousness of God, seeing the presence of God, but never seemingly being able to enter. Or we can be like the Israelite, presuming to be righteous because of our pedigree, because of our, maybe our church attendance, because of our last name, even our obedience, but failing to see that in fact, you too fall far short of the kingdom of heaven. And that is Jesus's point. That's Jesus's point. As sinners, we cannot, cannot enter the kingdom of heaven by obeying the law. So the obvious question is, how do we enter the kingdom of heaven? How is this giant chasm of hostility between our inability to be right with God by the law and God's righteousness bridged? How are we to be reconciled? How is the divine anger to be satisfied? Well, this is where the good news of the gospel is so sweet. This is the illustration of verse 17. Because as much as we see God's standard as one that is unattainable, Jesus fulfilled that standard completely. Every single iota, every single dot. Even though we fall short, God took his standard of righteousness and he obeyed it perfectly. And then he applied the penalty that was meant for us. He applied that penalty on himself. God allowed the murder of his son to satisfy his righteous anger that in him we may no longer need to pay the penalty for our anger. As Ephesians 2, 14 through 16 says, I'm so glad Josh came up with that verse independently of me. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, killing the anger. The significance of this should not be underestimated. 
Paul is saying that the hostility is killed because Jesus Christ himself has reconciled us to the ultimate judge, to the ultimate standard against the anger that really matters. And so if the picture of the, the Israelites and the Gentiles and the Old Covenant represented God's righteousness and judgment, so Jesus, the true Israelite, represents God's peace. In Jesus Christ himself, the hostility between us and God has ceased. The new covenant is one of being united in Christ. And so likewise, it means that we must reconcile with our brothers and sisters. Think for a moment how you can feel like the Gentile or feel like the Israelite in this picture when we have conflicts with one another. You know, when you get in an argument with someone, when my wife and I get in an argument, is there not one that feels righteous and another that seems like they are never good enough? But if Christ indeed has taken the hostility upon himself as disciples of Christ, as little Christ, we must be reconciled. We must deal with our sin. We deal with it not by trying harder to keep the law, but in repentant faith. Just take a quick aside here. You know, when, when I have temptation to anger, my initial thought as I kind of go crest the hill and think, oh no, I'm going to go down the spiral. My initial thought is to go, stop it! And that's what I'm telling you not to do. That's the try harder approach. We do not try to tell ourselves, stop it! But we deal with it by repentant faith. Because Christ has killed the hostility. The way to righteousness is being united with the greater righteousness of Christ through faith. And so we get to the fourth point, anger and me. How do we deal with it? We deal with it in two dimensions. First, we must deal with it vertically before God. So instead of stop it, Okay, look at James 4, 6 to 8. It says this, But he gives more grace. Therefore, he, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. The way we stop it is we confess our sin. We... Um, we confess our sin, we repent of our sin, we humble ourselves. It means owning up to what it is that we have done. We don't blame our anger on other things. Sometimes we do this, right? We go, well, she made me so angry. My kids really pushed my buttons. The devil did a number on me. Or, man, I got my dad's temper. Or, I get this way every month because of my PMS. Notice how in all of these statements, we are passive victims, not active agents. 
as if somehow that is the cause of our anger. And so what I'm telling you is, no, instead Jesus points out in our passage that we are responsible, active agents. We combat our anger by owning it, by owning our anger as our own, by confessing it to him, by confessing it before him, repenting of our sin, crying out to him. As I talked about a few weeks ago in my sermon on anxiety, we repent of both the behavior and the leg sproutiness of the desire. We confess that, the, that our desire, sometimes they're good desires, has ascended the throne of your heart, has taken the place where Jesus ought to, that it has misshaped the way that we view right and wrong, good and evil. I often tell my counselees to write it out. Write it out. I am angry now because I wrongly think that I must have a husband whom I can control, for instance, or fill in the blank. Or I must, I must please a certain person in order to get in their good books. Then the next step is to ask God for his forgiving and enabling grace. consciously submit this desire to his sovereign, his good, his wise purposes, and believing only that Christ's love for us will change our hearts so that we desire to love others as we ought. Lord, would you fill me with a desire, change my desires to love as you have loved me, to love as I ought to love others. And then finally, we must replace the old desires with new ones by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I need you. Help me to be patient, to be self-controlled, to be gentle, to be kind by the power of your Holy Spirit, not, not out of my own strength. That's the first dimension the vertical dimension. The second dimension is horizontal. And that's what Jesus gets at in the last part of this passage, verses 23 through 26. Let me read it to you again. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus offers us two illustrations. In the first, he paints a scenario where there's a worshiper. He's on the way to the temple who who is called to place horizontal reconciliation above our vertical worship. In the second, Jesus envisions an accuser and an accused who are on the way to court. Now, we can interpret this as a legal kind of thing, as if like you're on the way to the Supreme Court of British Columbia, for instance. Certainly there's that angle. But I think Jesus also has in mind an eschatological, that is an eternal perspective when he's talking about the court. It's the court of heaven. In light of verses 21 and 22, he's referring to averting God's wrath. 
on Judgment Day before it's too late. In other words, reconcile with your brothers and sisters before you have to reconcile with God. And in both these illustrations, the lesson is this. If we know someone is angry with us, and trust me, this is so convicting when you're trying to write this, you feel like a hypocrite, okay? This is, this is the great uh, equalizer, this kind of passage. Sorry, that wasn't in the script, but I'm just letting you know. In both, the lesson is this. If we know someone is angry with us, as Christians, as little Christ's, it is our responsibility to kill the hostility, to seek reconciliation with our brother or sister. Those who have truly found peace with God through Christ, who have this vertical reconciliation, who have repented of their anger, will desire to be right with one another. There is this desire to live out Romans 12.18, which says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably, peaceably with all. I want you to notice one very interesting thing in this um, passage. Notice that in both these illustrations, it is the responsibility of the offended to reconcile. Is the passage up there? If we could just maybe put up 23 through 26 again. It's the responsibility of the offended to reconcile. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you. This is an important point. Why do you think Jesus set up the illustration this way? I think it's because it's obvious uh, that the offender, that is the person who is angry, they ought to seek reconciliation. That's kind of obvious. But what is less obvious is that the offended ought to also seek reconciliation actively as an act of love toward his brother or sister. After all, isn't that what Jesus did? Did he not in love seek to reconcile us to himself? In John Bunyan's famous allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress, one of the characters named Prudence, he asks the protagonist, Christian, in the house beautiful, he says this, can you remember by what means you find your annoyances at times as if they were vanquished? Yes, says Christian. When I think of what I saw at the cross, that will do it. The gospel lived out is where we think often of the cross and deal with our horizontal sin quickly. We are not hypocrites. We keep short accounts with one another. We forgive easily. We do not hold our sin against one another. 
Christ City Kitsilano, may we be, by God's grace, such a people. Let's pray.